Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Good to see you. If you're joining online, thanks for joining us in worship today. Hey, if you're new to CBC, we do something before we get in the message every time. Uh, we, we acknowledge this space is a little different. We're going to be in Matthew 10 today. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. But we want to acknowledge that our culture mostly is critical in nature. And this space, this place is one where God is going to work. And so we change how we think when, between when we're out there and coming here. We, we wash ourselves from how culture tells us to think. And we remind ourselves that's how God tells us to live. Like this one quote we're going to start using by this pastor. He said, the move of the spirit is inward to conviction, not outward to critique. And so when we come here in this space, we open the scripture. And we know that God isn't here and that he's teaching us today. And that's not to say that we don't judge right and wrong. That is to say that we ask the question first and foremost, God, what are you teaching me? And so we're going to start off just by saying a prayer, asking the Holy Spirit to speak to us today. I'll ask you to pray silently for yourselves and the Spirit and for me so that we might find God's goodness this morning in Matthew 10. Join me in prayer. God, I'm so thankful that we could come here. I'm thankful for just examples that we get of your faithfulness and the people you put around us and that we can celebrate those because you celebrate those and all of our celebration rolls up into a greater appreciation for your goodness. And so I pray this morning as we come here and open your scriptures that Holy Spirit, you teach us because you're good to us. You show us where we see the, the trueness of the gospel in our text today and how it impacts who we're becoming as we become like Jesus. So if you're comfortable, I just ask you to take a couple seconds and say a silent prayer and ask that the Holy Spirit this morning might speak to your spirit through the scriptures. That's you pray for me that God might use my preparation um, just to show you more of his gospel, to show you more of why he's good, to show you more today why we should fear him in a beautiful and holy way, to show you not a man and a message, but the goodness of God through the scriptures. Pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, There you go, Matthew 10. We're going to pick it up in verse 26. Today, we're talking about fear. I know it's usually at the forefront of a lot of our conversations lately, and we get into it in our text. And my definition, my favorite definition of fear is simply, fear is that which we can't control. And so it then controls us. When I moved into the high vi six, eight, nine months ago, I have a pool in my backyard. And it's, um, because, you know, I'm uppity. I have a pool in my backyard. It's right out my front door. And I also had a toddler who's a little precocious who gets up before anybody should ever be getting up ever. And we didn't have locks on those doors, and we didn't have a net in our pool yet. So you can ask my wife, I spent like at least 15 minutes a night tetrising things in front of the door so that she couldn't open the door because I was afraid that I'd wake up one morning and my daughter would be outside by our pool because she can't swim. 
I had dumbbells there. I had chairs there to the point when Sarah was like, Charlie, nobody can get through that. But I made sure because my fears controlled me that my two and a half year old daughter couldn't get to the door, right? Fear is that which we can't control. So it controls us. I think we live in a time and place when fear is ever more present. And what we're doing today is talking about the relationship we have to a certain kind of fear. There's a a poll done by the Cato Institute. It was reported in a couple places. The Economist was one of them last year. And it says, the majority of Americans now are so afraid of what could happen to them if they express an unpopular opinion, they don't say their opinions. Nearly two out of every three Americans, 62%, say the climate these days prevents them from saying what they actually believe because they're worried about what others think about their opinions and that they might find them offensive. That's up from about 55% in 2017. I think we live in a culture where we see yourself through the lens of others now more than ever. And it brings into question this idea, this biblical concept called the fear of man. There was a poet, a French poet in the 1850s and 60s, and he had this quote in a poem that kind of set the tone for a bunch of movements. It was called, I is someone else. And what he means by that is suggesting that we conceive ourselves through the eyes of others as people. We, we see ourselves as other people see us. Actually, it's why middle school is so awkward for so many kids, because at that point, they don't yet know. They just start to realize that all the time people see me. Not just my relationship with my mom, dad, friends, teachers, but this person sees my relationship with mom, dads, friends, teachers. In in adolescent development, psychological development, this is now when I realize that everybody's watching me all the time. And we're afraid. So we don't want to stand out. (laughs) So we don't want to be different. Because if I'm different, then people can see me and judge me and hurt me. I'd argue... Now, more than ever in our culture, where we all have platforms for our opinion, the fear of man dominates our cultural narrative. And I'd argue it goes back all the way to the garden. So the first sin I think we see in the garden in the narrative of how the world broke in the first place is that Eve and Adam sinned and they chose their own autonomy over God's goodness. They said, God, you have a way, but I have a way. I'm going to trust in mine more. Let's see how this goes. Eve ate the apple. The second one was when Eve said, Adam, do this because I want you to. And instead of Adam seeing himself through the eyes of God, he saw himself through the eyes of Eve, and they ate together. The fear of man has been with us since the beginning. Proverbs says it like this, Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. And that has been a recurring theme in the biblical narrative. From Adam and Eve to, let's go to the Exodus, right? Big moments and movements of God. God delivers his people, 10 plagues. We're going to talk about Exodus a little bit this summer. 10 10 beautiful works of God's goodness over the Egyptian people. And they get on the bank of the Red Sea. And what do they say? They're coming for us. We should just go back. They're afraid of man, even though they saw the goodness of God. Fast forward, and they're walking, number 12, the big story in the wilderness when they get to the land of milk and honey, the one that God promised, and they go in and they said, man, these guys are really big, and they're probably not going to like us. So let's just not be offensive. (laughs) Let's not tell them we're here to take all the stuff they have. You fast forward to the king's period and even the United Kingdom and the divided kingdom, the rest of the OT story, and it's really just about Israel battling their desire to be seen by God and to be seen by the other nations around them. It's this fear of man that plagued them because they were afraid of what other people thought of them, how other people treated them, what other people could do to them. The Bible is a story about us 
confronting our fears and then asking the simple question, what controls us? Other people or God? That's our text today. In Matthew 10, 26, it starts like this. Do not be afraid of them, for nothing is hidden that will not be revealed, and nothing is secret that will not be made known. It starts with this phrase, do not be afraid of them. In the Greek there, it leaves out a, 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 a therefore in most English versions, and what therefore is therefore is to connect it to the passage above. So if you remember last week, we talked all about how people will not like you for your claims of Jesus, and it will be hard. And you'll be persecuted like I was persecuted. So then Jesus says, because of that, remember that you aren't to be afraid of them in the first place. And he juxtaposes right at the beginning their fear of what other people can think and do to them versus what God called them to do in the first place. One writer, I like how he put it, he said, all experiences of the fear of man share at least one common feature. People are big. They have grown to idolatrous proportions in our lives. They control us. Since there's no room in our hearts to worship both God and people, whenever people are big, God is not. Therefore, the first task in escaping the snare of the fear of man is to know that God is awesome and glorious, not other people. Today, I want to walk through this text, and I want to point out a couple reasons why it's more important we fear God over man. Why it's more important that we're more afraid of God over afraid of others around us. And then what I want to do is talk about why the fear of God is different than the fear of man. And so the first thing Jesus says is nothing is hidden that will not be revealed. Nothing is secret that will not be made known. And this is a pretty common issue in the first century and ours. When you have a claim of knowing Jesus and people say you're wrong, you're worried because you're worried that maybe in the deep recesses of our mind, they're right and I'm wrong. There's a space telescope. All telescopes, I guess, are in space. Maybe, I don't know. I went to Bible college. There's a telescope that got launched in the space called the James Webb Telescope. And as they were launching it, they said, this will show us the beginnings of our universe, we hope. And in the deep recesses of my brain, I'm thinking, I really hope this doesn't disprove like, my idea of God, <laughs> you know? I really hope that this doesn't unravel this thing that I believe so deeply in. Here's what fear does. When we're afraid of man, it limits our perspective. In that moment, I'm more afraid of what this telescope might show me than all the ways that God has shown me he's bigger, better than man all throughout my life. And what we do is we come to this place when we make claims about Jesus that other people might not agree with. We come to this place where we put people in three camps. There's a 19th century Scottish Christian preacher named John Duncan And he wrote about this thing called the trilemma. C.S. Lewis later adapted it. He said that Christ has either deceived mankind by conscious fraud, he himself was deluded or self-deceived, or he is divine. There's no getting around this trilemma. And so what we deal with is this idea that we're going to believe differently about Jesus. And what it comes down to is when they conflict with us, who's right and who's wrong. In that moment, what we choose to do is believe the perspective of man is greater than the perspective of God. It's hard, because fear, by nature, limits our perspective. My wife and I watched a show this week. That's right, watched the whole show in one week. And we, um, short, guys. There's a part of the show where there's somebody living in the attic. And my wife turns to me and said, this is my biggest fear. (laughs) 
maybe not biggest. This is a big fear of mine. I might've got that wrong. Um, and I said, this is really? She's like, I'm just terrified somebody's in our attic. I said, I promise nobody's in our attic. It's not finished. We have a fridge in the way. You can't even get up there. Look at our garage. I mean, there's no way somebody's in our attic, but she's watching this show. And because she has a fear of it, now it's a distinct possibility. Every time there's a noise, you know, it's what we do on staff here. But once a year, there's some bad things that happens in a church somewhere in our country. And we get scared, and we should be, by the way. But I call people together, and I say, look, there are 300,000 church gatherings every single weekend in America, and it's a tragedy that something bad happened at one. But let's not pretend like it happens to everyone every time. That doesn't mean we're not wise. It doesn't mean we don't take safety precautions. We do all those things. But what fear does is it changes our perspective from what is true to what we're afraid of. It lies to us. And so Jesus says in his uh, addressing his disciples that nothing is hidden, that will not be revealed. What he means is, I'm going to tell you these things about the kingdom and what's true. They're going to disagree with you, but I promise in the end, I promise in the end that I'm going to be right and they're going to be wrong. Do you know why? Because God's perspective is greater than the perspective of man. Don't forget that, even though your fear limits your perspective in the present. Philippians says it like this, though Jesus was God, he did not think of equality as God as something to be grasped. Instead, he gave up his privilege. He took the humble position of a slave and he came as a human. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of the highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. (laughs) What the scriptures tell us is that regardless of what you feel in the present, God's perspective is bigger, and this is how this ends. Jesus wins. And one of my favorite notes about why we know that is what Paul talks about when he talks about why we believe what we believe, because simply put, the resurrection happened. And that liar, lunatic, Lord thing that C.S. Lewis adapted from the Scottish theologian, what happens there is the resurrection proves the validity of Christ. What the resurrection does is it takes all these if statements and makes them when statements for followers of Jesus. It's not if Jesus will heal, it's when he heals. It's not if God will restore, it's when God will restore. It's not if God will fix the brokenness in the world and in humanity, it's when God will fix the brokenness in, human, in, in, in the world and in humanity because Jesus is alive, because he did the thing that nobody thought he could do. Jesus' resurrection takes our faith from the if to the when. And in these moments, when a perspective is challenged by people, we fall back into the if God is right or true instead of the God has already been proven right or true. We're waiting on the when. And so the first thing that God does, that Jesus does, is he says, when they persecute you, don't be afraid. And here's why you shouldn't be afraid. Because my perspective is bigger than the perspective of the people you fear. My favorite example of this is uh, back in the day when we had two services and they would get done at, it depends, when Steve preached, we get done at like 11.45, when I preached, 1.15. And so if it was a cowboy game, second service was me and like four people, but I still had to do my job. And so I would actually, I didn't have a TV with like channels in it, you know, and millennial, cut the cord, all that. So my parents lived not too far. And I would say, hey, can you tape the game for me? And I'll just come over there and watch it with you because I really want to see you guys. Um, <coughs> <laughs> loving son. 
my, my family, we are, we are active sports watchers. You can ask my wife. But by that, I mean, like, there's a lot of movement. I am, I am in a mild sweat most times I watch sports. It doesn't matter what the sport is. Remember the first time my wife watched golf with us? She just sat there and watched us and not the golf because <laughs> it was more entertaining. We're jumping up and down. We're yelling all the words. We're saying things like, we could do better than these athletes because clearly varsity high school football, you know, is the same thing as the NFL and the Dallas Cowboys. So my dad would tape the game. And I remember distinctly a couple times, I'd say, hey, you have the biggest tell in the world. If something happened bad in the first quarter, he would yell, let's just turn it off. It's over. I'm like, dad, we got four and a half, three and a half quarters left. So I remember a couple times I went over there <clears throat> and it was halftime-ish. Or maybe it was even more than that. And something bad would happen. Pick your poison here, it's the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, laundry list of things to choose from. And my dad would just be sitting there smiling. And I'd say, what do you know that I don't know? You know? He's like, nothing, nothing. Dad, did you, did you watch this? No, no, I didn't. We are avid sports fans. We also are very impatient people in the Ridenauer clan. And it came out that he actually did. And he would look at me and be like, just wait. <laughs> I bet it gets better. No, <laughs> the fact that you're positive scares me, one. Uh, but two, it's this really cool depiction of, I think, how God sees us in the present moment. He has the perspective to understand how this thing unfolds. And I think he looks at us and says, trust me, I know how this is. Because fear limits our perspective. But God says, you fear me because my perspective is greater. And if you look at verse 26, it says, what I say in the dark, I tell in the light. And what's whispered in your ear, proclaim from the housetops. You know the cost of fear? Especially when it comes to our perspective of God versus the perspective of man. Is that oftentimes we're quiet about the goodness of God. When it says, proclaim it from housetops in the first century world, housetops are flat. And so you go up there to hang out and you go up there to make announcements to surrounding people. And so it, it's not metaphorical at all. It's, it's literally saying, go up on your housetop, find your platform and talk about God's goodness. Don't let your fear shy you away from expressing and proclaiming the goodness of God that you know to be true. Hide it under a bushel? No, right? <laughs> it's that whole idea that here's what fear does in actual cost is it causes us not to talk about God's goodness anymore. And so, so, so Jesus says, don't be afraid. Why? Because my perspective is greater. Don't let that be a cause for you not to talk about my goodness, my kingdom, my gospel to those that need my goodness, my kingdom, and my gospel. And he goes on. <clears throat> not only is his perspective greater, he says in verse 28, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Instead, fear the one who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. And what he's not doing there is separating your soul and your body. We are one as Jesus and God made us. What affects one affects the other. Uh, but what he's saying is essentially that you are more than your physicality. You are more than just simply a, a bunch of pieces put together that walks and talks and breathes. Your life is defined by more than physicality, but also spirituality. And what he's getting to is this point that we can all probably understand that the power of the people they're afraid of is limited, but they just don't see it yet, you know? It's my biggest fear parenting that one day my daughter will realize that I really can't do that much to her, <laughs> you know? Uh, if, if, if really I can do a number of things when she doesn't listen or when she misbehaves or fill in the blank, but my power is way more limited than she thinks it is. And when she finds that out, I got nothing left, you know? Like I got two cards right now that are kind of my trump cards. And one is we went in the other day to her room and, or, or actually in the living room and she had taken a crayon and colored all over our couch. It's fabric. It was not a good day. And 
So we took all the princess dresses out of her room. <laughs> and she laid on her bed for an hour silent, right? And then two, just because people tell me this is a great deal, I have this moment growing up when one day when she's in high school and she slams the door, I really want to be the parent that takes the door off the hinges, you know? Have you seen that? I do. I just want, I want that moment. But after that moment, I got nothing. If she looks at me and says, cool, I like it better that way, I'm going to be like, oh my goodness, I lost. <laughs> you just... Just don't know it yet. I have nothing else to do. She doesn't understand right now the limit of my power that hopefully right now she thinks is limitless. What Jesus does is say, you think their power is limitless, but you have no idea because of my perspective what power really is. And so he uses this phrase that they can destroy both the soul and body in hell. When Jesus talks about hell, he talks about a literal place in the first century world called Gehenna. South of Jerusalem, it's a valley where it goes all the way back to Josiah and the kings in the Old Testament. They used to do really awful things there. They used to worship false gods there. They used to sacrifice children there to a guy named Molech in about six, seven, eight hundred BC. And to that day, it was known for its depravity and its debauchery and its history of depravity and debauchery. And it became this trash dump that always had a fire going in it. And so when Jesus talks about Hell, Gehenna, he says, it's like this all the time, forever and ever and ever. And that's what's tough. Is so often we don't have a concept of something so you know, difficult to have abstract like eternity. But he says, you think that what's happening right now is hard? What if this was your existence forever and ever and ever? Introduces this theme of eternality and says, this could be your existence forever, not just in the moment. I, I looked up ways to define eternity this week, and every definition had the word time and eternity in it. And I thought, that's not helpful at all. There's one way, I had a teacher put it to me in high school that stuck with me. And she said, it would be like if you're in a place, there's a big brass bar, and two doves came along, and every time they came along, their wings brushed the, the brass bar. And she said, they came around once every thousand years. She said, by the time their wings completely wore down the brass bar to almost nothing, that would be the beginning of eternity, you know? I don't know why that stuck with me, because I was like, wings can't do that now as an adult, but when I was 18, I was like, that's powerful stuff, you know? It's the idea of eternality being something we can't comprehend because it's bigger than our capacity to do so. Jesus says, this is their existence forever. You think they can hurt you. You have no idea what pain is. One writer said, fear of God is to displace fear of death-dealing persecutors, the stakes are higher with God. So what he's reminding people in a place where oftentimes when we're in pain, our perspective is limited and their power is elevated, he's reminding them it's not. So he's giving me a couple reasons why to fear God over man because you have no idea what perspective really is. And right now in the moment, it might seem like they have all the power, but they really, really don't. And so he starts there. Here's why you should fear God over man. I have more perspective than they do, more knowledge than they do, more bigness than they do, and also I have more power than they do. God has greater perspective and God has greater power. But here's the deal. With God and the fear of God, why should we fear God over man? If that's where we stopped, our God wouldn't be anything different than any other God that ever existed. Molech in the Old Testament or the Egyptian gods or the Roman gods or the Greek gods, the reason why they were feared is because they were bigger than you and they could hurt you. 
The reason why gods were ran from and the reason why people were afraid of disobeying gods was because if you do, your life gets way, 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 way worse. The reason why we fear things is because we can't control it and we're afraid of what that thing that we can't control can do to us. That's why we're afraid of lions and tigers and bears because they can hurt us and they're faster than us and they're stronger than us. It's a, defini- it's a nature of the definition of what fear is, but, but here's what the fear of God does. The fear of God goes beyond just that he's bigger than us and he's faster than us and he's stronger than us and he can hurt us more than we think we can be hurt because that's how the world defines fear. But God comes next and says, but the way I love you is different. So the way you fear me is different. And he says in verse 30, aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from the father's will. So he uses this argument about sparrows and a couple things to know there. Uh, when he says sparrow, sparrows were the cheapest bird you could buy. Literally in the third century AD, there was a decree that got listed and it said sparrows will be the cheapest bird you could buy because they were the most abundant. So he's picking the very lowest thing on the chain of things you can buy. And then he says, you can buy them for a penny. A penny there in the Roman world was one sixteenth of a day's wage of a denarius. So you're literally taking like a half hour's worth of wages and saying you can buy a couple of these things and he says, aren't two of these sold for a penny? Not one of them falls for ground, from the ground, uh, to the ground apart from your father's will. He's making an argument called an argument a fatoriori, which is simply, I'm going to take something that you don't think has value. I'm going to show you how much you care about it, how much I care about it. And hopefully that'll show you how much I care for you. You guys know the story of the Van Halen writer at concerts? This is going to be good. All right, so back in the 80s, Van Halen kind of started touring, and they they did something nobody had ever done before. They had massive concerts, and they kind of brought this experience. It wasn't just a dude on a stage with a guitar. Thank you, James and Garfunkel. Simon and Garfunkel, guys, I was born in 84, all right? Um, I was thinking James Taylor. They brought this massive amount of equipment, and, and it meant the equipment was really, really heavy for the first time, and they were the first band to do it, and so they would bring this equipment, and they were afraid, they were terrified that the stages they were on, because nobody done shows like this, couldn't hold the weight of the shows that they did. Literally, in Pueblo, Colorado one time, because they didn't read the writer, Van Halen fell through the floor of the stage, so the writer was something that concerts... Um, held contracts with performers. And they'd give you like 100 pages of stuff. This is what we need to go on stage. And, and the story here that's kind of a little bit big now is that Van Halen had a writer in their contract that said, we want M&Ms, but we don't want any brown M&Ms in the bowl. And so you're thinking, these are prima donna celebrities. <laughs> but what David Lee Roth did was, he said, we put that in there because we knew, we knew, he talked about in his book, we knew that if I walked by and saw brown M&Ms in my bowl, I knew they didn't read the writer, and I knew we were in, in trouble. He said, if there were no brown M&Ms in there, I knew they read the rest of it, and, and we weren't in trouble. And so they had this argument, basically the same thing. Like, if you cared about the M&Ms, you clearly care about our safety on stage. It had nothing to do with the M&Ms. God said, I care about the thing that you don't care about. What do you think that means when I talk about you, who I created in my image? Because when we're persecuted... We think that God isn't big, and we think God isn't powerful. And because of those things, we think that God doesn't care about us. Then he goes on, and he says, even all the hairs on your head are numbered. <laughs> this verse is really interesting when you think about it. 
So you can, you can say that this verse is alliterative, but I don't think it is. It's in the perfect tense, which essentially means that it's an ongoing thing. But like God knows how many hair on your head right now, and after you comb your hair, he'll know how many there are then. There's a record of it. I live with women. I have hair tumbleweeds in my bathroom just rolling around. I don't, I don't care about hairs on the head. I don't care at all. I'd rather not see it. It's not something that I, that I give two thoughts to, but... God says here, I know exactly how many you have ongoing. And some men here are like, so do I, six, but it's getting better, you know? <laughs> but, but no, he's making the case. Do you know how I made you? Do you have any idea how much I care? I was reading this week about the beauty of the human body, and I, man, don't know much about it. And, and I read this week, it's fascinating, that do you know the eye has a separate immune system than the rest of the body? It's really beautiful. And why is because that if the eye's immune system was the same as the rest of the body, the body's response, immune response to disease is heat and swelling. That does not go so well with sight. And so eyes have a whole different immune system that controls them because that's how God made us. If God cares so much about the little things, how much do you think he cares about everything else? Here's the point I think God is making. What if the thing that we feared more than anything else loved us more than anyone else? Think about that. Because so often, the way we think about fear is negative. The way we think about fear is to run from it because we're afraid. In his book, Fear and Trembling, Michael Reeves writes about the fear of God. He says this, It's the devil's work to promote a fear of God that makes people afraid of God such that they want to flee from God. The Spirit's work is exact the opposite to produce in us a wonder, fear that wins and draws us to God. I think when we talk about the fear of man and the fear of God, we have to start by saying they're fundamentally different. In the Old Testament, when it talks about fear, there's a few words that's used. One of them pretty consistently is trembling. And we see it in good and bad applications. Like in Isaiah 33, I think it is, there's a time when they're describing fear as a bad thing. It's God's relationship to sinners and how they'll be punished and persecuted. But then you see it used in a positive light. Like in, I think it's Hosea 33, talking about how like they're afraid because God is so good to them. And what we have to understand is there are different kinds of fears. In his book, Mike Reeves talks about the idea there's a sinner's fear and there's a saintly fear. There's a sinner's fear and there's a righteous fear. And, and the sinner's fear is what you'd expect. It's how Satan fears God and demons fear God. It's the idea that I fear God because of what he can do to me. It's all about the power dynamic and not about the love of God at all. It's all about what God can do as this big, mighty, powerful Zeus-like God and less about the intimacy of a God who loves you because he created you and who loves you so much you can't even comprehend it. It changes how we fear. Fear is a lot like love when it's talked about in the scriptures. The way that we respond in love or in fear is related to the object of our love or fear. So for example, I love my wife. I love our staff, I love my daughter, I love this church, I love the Dallas Cowboys, I love Raising Canes. Not in the same way, otherwise that'd be really weird, right? The, the way that we love is dependent upon the object of our love. In the Old Testament, when it talks about fear, the way that we fear is dependent upon the object of our fear. Because if I, right now, had a gun pointed at my head, I would be trembling. I would, I'd be afraid. But also, my favorite moment when I do weddings is when I look at the groom when the bride's walking down the aisle. You know what I see? Man, fear. (laughs) 
trembling. But the object of the fear is completely different, and it changes our response to God. Instead of a slavish fear, it's a fear of joy. We don't fear God because of what he can do to us. We fear God because of what he has done for us. It changes fear from something we run away from towards to something we run towards. From something we hide from to something we worship. The difference between the fear of God and the fear of everything else is the love that God has for you. It changes what we mean by fear. It changes how we relate to God. John Bunyan said it like this. This right fear of God flows primarily from a sense of love and kindness of God to the soul. One more quote from Michael Reeves again. The nature of the living God means the fear which pleases him is not groveling or shrinking. He is no tyrant. It is an ecstasy of love and joy that senses how overwhelmingly kind and magnificent, good and true God is, and that therefore leans on him in staggered praise and faith. When we fear God over man, our fear stops becoming something we run from, but something we run towards. The fear of God is greater than the fear of man, because what we fear most loves us most. And that is a fundamental game changer. One takes away joy and one gives it. And so in that moment, when we're forced to choose between those things that we fear, man and God, man, it's not just because God is bigger and more powerful than man. Sure he is. But that definition of the fear of God is incomplete if we don't alter, also filter our fear for God through the lens of love, through a lens that causes us joy, the lens that causes to say, I trust you completely because of what you have done for me. When we fear God over man, we don't do it just because of his power, but because of his powerful love for us. It's a game changer. And if we can remember, in those moments, it changes our decisions because one is beautiful and one is not. And so he says to his people, when you're persecuted, you're going to want to be afraid of what's hurting you. But remember who I am. Remember how big I am, how powerful I am, and remember more than anything else how much I love you. And might you tremble in my goodness. And so as we face persecution in our world, there's a, like we talked about last week, a, a rise in, in antagonism to the person in the ways of Jesus I think there's three questions we ask ourselves every time we're confronted with something we're afraid of. One, does it love you back? Two, does it control what you're afraid of? And three, does it last forever? Every time I ask those questions, is this thing that's persecuting me going to last forever? Is this thing that's persecuting me the thing that controls all the other things? And is this thing that's hurting me and persecuting me, does it love me? What am I fearing and Why? I think when we talk about application for how we fear, it simply opens up platforms for us to talk about it. Because if two-thirds of Americans think they can't share their opinions and beliefs because they're afraid of people around them, we are then held captive by that which we're afraid of. And the fear of the Lord frees us from that. So we're free people to find your rooftop and say, this is what I know about God, and it's different than what you fear about other things. We might come into this conversation with baggage around fear, but let me tell you how fearing God is different than fearing man. Let me tell you why it's better. He's bigger, he's more powerful, and he loves you more. Know that. Let me tell you what it looks like. 
So this week we've probably all <laughs> seen and shared things from the Ukraine. A bunch of my friends posted pictures of, of Christians in public squares in the Ukraine just praying while the invasion is going on. We've shared ways in which we can pray on our social and we've done it in person. We're going to keep praying for them. We prayed in here. In the Ukraine right now, Christians, Christians have to make a decision. What do they do? There's one pastor who wrote about it. Um, it's really beautiful. His name is Vasil Ostry. I got that wrong, but you'll give me some grace. He's a pastor of Urban Bible Church in Kiev, the one being attacked right now. And he wrote and he said, in the end, we believe that God is with us and that's the most important thing. I'm going to choose to fear God over fear man. And then he said this, I'll quote it. When this is over, the citizens of Kiev will remember how Christians responded in their time of need. And while the church may not fight like the nation, we still believe we have a role to play in this struggle. We'll shelter the weak, serve the suffering, and mend the broken. And as we do, we offer the unshakable hope of Christ and his gospel. And as we stay, we pray the church in Ukraine will faithfully trust the Lord and serve our neighbors. When we choose to fear God over man, we show people God is bigger and better than man. When we choose to fear God over man, we spread the joy of fear and the joy of the gospel. Let me pray. God, I'm thankful that, that, that while you've called us to fear you, it's a joyful expression of your love for us. I pray that we can do some work and distance ourselves from our concept of fear in this country and all over the world that leads to frustration and scarcity and, and change it when we talk about how you love us and how then we respond in fear. I pray that we are people that choose the fear of a God who loves us over the fear of those who don't. And that allows us to be free and how we talk about Jesus and how we share his hope and how we serve those around us who are held captive by their fears. Might we stand in stark contrast with those who don't love Jesus. They might see how different he really is. We pray these things in his name. Amen.